the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business, a podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Laura Slattery and on today's show, I'll be having a quick chat with innovation editor Michael McAleer about the novel business ideas set to be recognised at this year's Irish Times Innovation Awards. I'll be talking TV business with Steve McCormack, co-founder of the MediaCon Summit, about why the Irish TV industry needs to look overseas for co-production opportunities. Finally, Cliff Taylor will be here to give us his take on the week in Brexit news so far. Fifteen of Ireland's best new business ideas have been shortlisted for this year's Irish Times Innovation Awards. I'm joined by Irish Times Innovation Editor Michael McAleer to discuss them. Michael, the awards are in their ninth year. What strikes you about this year's nominees? I think the key thing is the fact that each of the uh, finalists are addressing some of the major issues of facing society today. In Ireland, housing crisis, energy crisis, even down to uh, finding a parking place in the city because they talk about 30% of the drivers out there driving around in circles looking for somewhere to park. There's an, there's an innovation to uh, tackle that problem, healthcare, and even providing aid to refugees. All that is dealt with on these ideas. So what we have here is a bunch of innovators who have spotted problems in society or in technology and are going out to try and solve them. So that's really encouraging, isn't it? Because, um, you know, it shows people are paying attention to the problems that are out there and putting, you know, their best best minds on it and time and hopefully money if they yeah. get backers. And this is uh, one way in which they can get the attention of, of a few backers, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, the, the nice thing about the Innovation Awards is that it's not just startups. I mean, people always think of these as being uh, startup businesses, and some of them are, and some of the, the really successful ones we've we've had as award winners in the past have gone on to become major companies. But there are also established businesses. I mean, I'll, I'll give you one example. Um, Airgrader is one of the finalists. Like, that's the, the company responsible for putting in the infrastructure uh, for the electricity uh, system in Ireland. And... They, what they've come about, because of the commitment, we have a commitment to have 40% of our energy from renewable energy by 2020. They've already achieved levels of 65%. Now, there's technical problems with renewable energy coming onto the grid, more so than simple, simply where to store it. Um, but they've managed to tackle that. And that's pretty uh, innovative in its own right, but it's also outstanding in terms of being a global first and achieving levels that others haven't managed to to hit. When you consider how much grief the Irish uh, energy sector and everybody else has in relation to our, our climate uh, uh, targets, that's a pretty decent achievement by an established, well-established, you know, uh, Irish operation. And then there are loads of little startups as well. I mean, the, the awards dating back to 2010, we've achieved, we've recognised some uh, companies that have gone on from strength to strength in the last while, you know. So the reason we're talking about it today is, of course, the, the shortlist is out, but the winners are going to be announced at a high profile, it says here, awards <laughs> ceremony at the RDS, which is next Tuesday, uh, Tuesday the 20th of November. So I just wanted to sort of finish up by asking you, Michael, are there ever any arguments on the judging panel? Yes, definitely. There are huge debates about how, how successful these companies will be and what the awards will mean for them and how, you know, 
whenever the, the judging process is taking place, not only are we looking for bright ideas, but we also are judging it against some of the, the social problems that we have. So, for example, uh, the Oquilan Co-Housing Alliance is one of the finalists. They've already achieved a, a co-housing scheme, in two, two of them in Ballymun. They have another one set up down in Waterford. I think that's due to get off the ground in the next while. Um, and that's about d- developing social housing and affordable housing in one area. You have that. You have the Park PMP, which I already mentioned. Um, and then you've the likes of Brainwave Bank, which has developed this headset with 16 sensors that is there to tackle uh, and to identify the uh, problems with Alzheimer's. So early, early identifying and other degenerative de- uh, brain diseases as well. So it's about a, a wide expanse of ideas. So how do you judge these off against each other? And that's always the biggest struggle, I think, for any of these, uh, for the, any of the judges on these panels. Well, it's a, it's, a nice, it's a nice problem to have. And it also perhaps a little bit of advice there for anyone thinking of entering awards next year or award, any awards like this. Um, to maybe just have a look at what's in the news headlines and see if what you can possibly do about it. But on that innovative note, thank you very much, Michael McAleer. No problem, thank you. How do Irish TV production companies make great shows that employ the best of Ireland's creative talent and win the attention of today's TV audience? Ahead of MediaCon, a big industry event in Dublin next week, I'm joined by its co-founder, Steve McCormack. Hi, Steve. Uh It's a busy time for you, just one week ahead of MediaCon. Tell us, first of all, a little bit about the history of the event and why it's a good place for uh, TV producers and broadcasters to be. This is the fourth event. Um, Myself and Leslie O'Connor founded it uh, four years ago. And we're both TV producers. And Leslie had worked at Web Summit. So we we had lunch one day and Leslie had an idea when she was working on Web Summit that wouldn't wouldn't a Web Summit for content be great. So we started with that. And it also went into the idea that we were sorely lacking an event which just focused on our industry. So something which focused on television, film, and the wider area of content, because we're in a pretty interesting point now in terms of um, global explosion of demand for content. And we felt, let's have a forum that brings in different speakers, different international producers, and puts a focus on our own industry here between television stations, filmmakers, producers, distributors, actors, writers, and the whole ecosystem. So I've been at sort of similar events in Edinburgh and uh, Cambridge in the past, but there really wasn't anything like this in Dublin happening on a regular basis. And this is a really important way for Irish companies to sort of get a piece of the sort of international co-production pie, really. Yeah, I think there's two sides of it. There is the Edinburgh and Cannes MIPCOM real screen in America. There is the international circuit. The marketplace, yeah. yeah and, and that's kind of split into two. There's, there's the kind of film festival circuit, which is very focused on film. And then there's the TV circuit, which is much smaller. And in recent years, we've all seen the explosion in things like Netflix and so on, that TV is more the centre of, of con- content now, if you include Netflix as TV, which we do. And it was very important to have an Irish leg on that international circuit. So you still have to go to your international markets, but to have a place where the Irish have a, have a role in that. So it get, lets you do two things. Connect with the international market, learn from some great examples in the world and then meet some interesting people that come in and also work on our own issues. Like it's stuff that we grapple with every day, RTE, the film board, Screen Producers Ireland, Broadcasting Authority, all that stuff that we should actually talk about and focus on. 
So in the past, some of your speakers have included um, RTE Director General D Forbes, the, the boss of uh, Virgin Media, Tony Hanway. And they both had a lot to say. Actually, they've had, they've all created some great headlines uh, for the, for the Irish Times and other uh, journalists from things they've said at MediaCon in the past. So, who maybe is on your lineup this year that you can tell us about at this point? Well, there's a lot of interesting topics to be covered this year. So, one being timely in terms of Brexit. So, we have some very good speakers, people from Discovery and people from um, different consultants in the UK who are looking at the aspects of Brexit. So. There's still a lot of uncertainty and sort of we're still in kind of speculative mode about what's going to happen with Brexit and broadcasters. Yeah, and what we've really looked at is that it's broadcasting is well down to priorities. And, and even if there is a transition deal, and even if there is a non-hard Brexit, it, you may not even have a deal on broadcasting. That may be something they'll do later. But that has implications for, say, the vast majority of Irish audience have Sky or Virgin. And most of those channels are licensed of Ofcom in the UK. So if they don't have a license to broadcast within Europe by March 29th, they have to come off our platforms. So that's kind of an interesting um, implication. Secondly, for Irish content companies, for European funding, Netflix and Amazon and Apple have next year to comply with what's called the AVMS directive, which in in real terms means 30% of digital platforms have to have content originating in Europe. At the, currently, that rate is like 60% of that content is UK-derived. Yeah. The Crown, etc. Mm-hmm. The Night Manager. The Crown's budget, basically. <laughs> the Crown by <laughs> itself. <laughs> think about it. UK is, is a huge amount of the world's content, and so is America. But if you take out the UK, that gives, we're the only English-speaking content country left. That gives us a huge opportunity. So these are all issues we'll discuss in Brexit. Um, we also have a, a, a big panel with like James Hickey from the Irish Film Board looking at... Um, Ireland is a gateway to European content. So how we move forward as a content country, joining up the dots, we call it, which is, so looking at, if you if we spend, say, in a region of three to 500 million a year on content between RTE, Film Board, Broadcasting Authority, Arts Council, and various different schemes, do we have enough global impact with that money? So our question always starts is, is there how many series on Netflix can you watch that are Irish-derived? And should there be more? And how could we do it? And that's where we go from that point of view. Yeah, because obviously Netflix does buy in content from Ireland. You know, some of our e programmes are, are on it. But it hasn't really commissioned, you know, apart from a couple of one-off films, it hasn't really commissioned any what we call a, a TV series that has involved an Irish production company yet. But surely it's only a matter of time. So in a Netflix, they have a big directive now to go after European content. So they've started with the Germans. Mm-hmm. And, for, and for Netflix, read everybody else. So whatever Netflix do, Facebook Watch will do, Hulu will do, Apple will do, and all the big players, Amazon Prime. Amazon, yeah. But if you look at Facebook, they've gone after the German dramas. They've gone after uh, Spanish now as well. So it makes sense that there should be a couple you could point to and say, that, that's a Netflix-commissioned Irish show. And I think that's what we're going to talk about, which is how do we position that? Because I think Irish people want to see their series out in the world and being watched everywhere. And acquisitions are different where it's already made yeah. and they buy it because Netflix tends to push its own. So within five years, we're going to see these VOD platforms really dominating global broadcasting. And we've moved from a local model where we have national broadcasters who run the show and then they make a show for their channel and then it goes into distribution. And really the... English and the, the Americans run that show in terms of international. But now Netflix and VODs are just taking over and saying, we will just play globally. 
day and date. So the same day, the night manager goes live or House of Cards goes live everywhere. And I think we want to see Irish content up at that table. I mean, I, the one thing I've just it really struck me recently is how often Netflix gets to say Netflix original on content that they didn't maybe necessarily commission themselves, such as the, the BBC's um, bodyguard drama uh, in the rest of the world territory outside the UK and Ireland. That's a Netflix original. So everyone will kind of assume that Netflix made it. And likewise, over here, I think a lot of people think The Good Place is a Netflix show because it's marketed as a Netflix original. But it was really came from a traditional broadcaster, NBC. So this is my long-winded way of saying, what can, you know, what can broadcasters do to sort of keep their place at this table? Because obviously they're chipping in money um, but they seem very dependent on all these other co-production partners, the ones with all the cash. I think AMC changed that model. They were the one with Breaking Bad because originally it was if they, if they acquire something, they can just put Netflix original in different territories. Mm. AMC, I think, fought back and said, we want Breaking Bad is an AMC show up the front. Yeah. <laughs> so it really depends on your power with Netflix to say, I'm not taking that deal. But I think you're right. More and more, we have to see the RTA or the BBC logo on there to say, no, this wasn't original from here. So I think more and more you'll see people fighting back with saying, we will sell it to you, but you have to put our name on there as well. And it's one of the issues just with doing co-production deals in general that a lot of the Irish companies, production companies, aren't big enough really to, to, to sort of, or they don't have the experience at this, this highest kind of Hollywood level. Do you know, I think it's about us not being high level with money in terms of investment and, and controlling money. If you look at Vikings, which we feature... Vikings is coming to an end now after six seasons. It's, it's actually finishing the same week as Mediacon. And to kind of bookmark the end of Vikings, which I think is the most successful Irish show ever produced in terms of countries and revenue. Mm-hmm. And we're having Morgan O'Sullivan, the, the showrunner, and Michael Hurst, the writer, come in and do a big retrospective on Vikings, which is going to be a great session. But we're going to look at, that's been such a success. 150 countries, huge audience globally. And every brick of that, from the you know from, the, from writing it to building the water tanks to putting it out in Wicklow is an Irish production, mm-hmm. except the beginning of it. The beginning of it was funded by History Channel and MGM. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to work out, how do we seed capital the beginning of it? Because the rest of it we can do. We, we, can, we can make these shows. And I think, look at the tech industry, and that's where we're kind of our link to Web Summit and, and our all tech backgrounds, is we should look at venture capital in terms of television and say, we have to put risk money in at the beginning to say, you know, Michael Hurst, sit down and write a proposal for Vikings. And if it's good enough, we can get the money to make it. So the same way as the Irish tech industry doesn't just rely completely on VC from Ireland, but it does rely very much on the early stage capital. And is there a risk for the likes of RTE that the trend is so much in the direction of international co-productions that almost the international audience is taking precedence over the Irish audience and what they might want from a TV programme? Great, great question, because that is a really, really big challenge, which is what's RT's remit? Is RT's remit to get viewers on RT1 on a Friday or is RT's remit to make shows which travel internationally? I think we're evolving to a place where we have to answer this question as both because the international aspect does two things. It brings in extra revenue, which we know from from RT and the BAI reports that they need extra money. So it does bring extra money. But secondly, it gives Irish content a position on a global stage, which I think everybody wants to have that, both from a kind of perspective of the industry, getting international revenue. And secondly, I think we feel our con- we're very proud when we see you two sell records. Mm-hmm. So we should be able to also sell TV shows. 
And um, another event that MediaCon has, has done in recent years is uh, the British-Irish Television Dinner, which is in the Irish Embassy in London. And uh, this year, Lisa McGee, who's the creator of Dairy Girls, a big hit earlier in the year, was honoured with a Rising Star Award at that event. But what's the purpose of, of that dinner overall um, for, for, for MediaCon and the people who are at it? It came about originally because we we're looking at why te- Irish television shows don't really sell hugely abroad. They, they don't have a kind of massive reputation or sales. They do sell, but not, not on a huge level that they could. And we thought, what is it? Are we able to make stories or are we able to sell them? And then we did notice that when Irish people go abroad, to U- UK especially and, and US, they go to the very top of the TV chain. And we noticed that in the UK, from Terry Wogan to, to Dave Lynn, who runs MTV, to Dee Forbes herself, who used to be in Discovery. We Ray are Morton. brilliant at television when we go away. Yeah. So then we kind of went, hang on, that's kind of funny that we just need more confidence in our shows. But as people, we can do it. So we said, why don't we have a dinner which celebrates Irish contribution to UK television? Really to show that we have the television gene, that we can do it. And then every year we celebrate somebody who has done amazing work for, for UK television. So we've honoured um, Lisa McGee, as you mentioned, retrospectively Dave Allen for his contribution. We did Terry Wogan the first year. We've done Gloria Hunniford. So it's a wonderful event now where we just honour Irish contribution to UK television. And it's something we'd like to take around the world so that when we, given the right investment, we are a wonderful nation of television. And it's an incredibly starry guest list, which just goes to prove the point, really, that there's an awful lot of Irish talent out there that the Irish industry could maybe be affording a few more opportunities to. Not that they would ever sort of steer clear of the UK and the great opportunities there, but that could be a bit more. Yeah, and I think it's a great point. I think now we have to keep our talent. Still, they can be big in the UK, big in America, big in the world, but we have to have a model where they can actually work in both territories. And I think we're starting to see that now with recent stuff like... um, Finding Joy is a UK co-production. Woman on the Verge with Sharon Horgan is a UK co-production. We see Angela Scanlon, who's a regular attendee at our event, coming back to do a show this week, actually, for RTE. Yeah. So I think there's reuse of talent and been able to hold on to it and not the Terry Wogan world where they, they went and never came back. So MediaCon, it kicks off next Wednesday, the 21st. And it's an interesting choice of first event is taking place in, in, in Facebook's uh, Dublin HQ. Because I was going to ask you what has changed since MediaCon first started in 2015. And that is one of the things Facebook has really got involved in the content business. And I think that's a signal we're setting off there that the future of MediaCon will be digital. And we're beginning the connection with those partners. So digital on two levels, one on the new players in the market and one on we have to start thinking like startups, not like television production companies. It's all about capital, it's about scale, it's about international penetration. So we very purposely worked with Startup Week and Facebook to launch MediaCon this year because we're saying the future is thinking like a startup and working with new platforms. And that's a perfect event for us to launch with. So what else are you up to at the moment, Steve? You're an independent producer and I guess you're best known still maybe for Fade Street. Would that be fair to Yes, say? absolutely. There isn't a day goes by where Constructed reality. Ask me, ask me about Vogue Williams. Um, <laughs> uh, so loved Fade Street, loved working on it, and, and I love that it's still remembered. When you make a show, you just want it to be remembered. And most of the ones we make go out on a Tuesday and nobody ever sees them again. But I like the fact that people like them yeah. and they have fun with it. And Fade Street was a purposefully fun show. We were playing with the genre. We were playing with everything. We wanted to make this Hills idea, but do it very Irish, which I think we achieved. And some people love it. Some people hate it, but it's still remembered. Um 
So at the moment, we, we, we did MediaCon as a sort of a, a, a barroom talk of why don't we do, someone should do something like this. Yeah. And then it ended up being us. <laughs> so we are producers and next year we have a big slate getting back to it. So we have a, a big um, spy drama we're working on, which is, is it's kind of Mr. Robot meets uh, Kim Philby, if you want to call it that. Okay. So that's a big ambitious 20th project. 20th century? Yes. Well, period flashbacks. piece? Okay. Flashbacks. Yeah. So it's modern, old spies meets modern hackers. Oh, okay. So that's something that's a very big ambitious project on a European level, hopefully based out of Ireland. We have an entertainment show with, with uh, Mr. Graham Norton's company, Soul Television, we're working on, which is a UK-based uh, entertainment project. And then uh, we're invested heavily in the digital. We're looking at a, co- uh, a whole project to do with vertical stories on phones. So we have a busy production year next year. So I'll just finish up by asking, what are you yourself watching at the moment? Or what was the last thing that you thought was really great and maybe could be emulated by uh, companies here? Love Killing Eve. I think, I love Killing Eve. I just love it as a sort of an idea. It's slick. The lead character. I think there's absolutely no reason you couldn't make an Irish Killing Eve. Not, not, you know, Brilliant show. Had a great tone to it, I think. Yeah. Great tone. <laughs> Irish soundtrack, David Holmes made the soundtrack, so yeah. we have a little connection. But it's nice modern television that I like. Not too heavy, not too light, but just in the middle, I liked it. Uh, other shows I love, uh, love those arcs. Thought those arcs was really good. It's slow, but but I liked what, what it was doing. Mm. Um, uh, huge fan of Shameless US, which is still going strong. Um, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Because everyone's forgotten about the UK shameless. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> it's been 12 years on at this stage. But, but actually, yeah. it's a g- g- fantastically crafted show. Um, and other fun shows I've been watching recently. Um, with Mr. Robot, I'm a big fan of. Very good. That's the Amazon Prime show. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, some recommendations there. But for now, uh, thank you very much, Steve McCormack from MediaCon. Coming up after the break, Cliff Taylor explains what we know and don't know about the UK's EU withdrawal deal. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, some 874 days after Britain voted to leave the EU, where on earth are we with Brexit? Here to answer the question as best you can at this very delicate moment in time is Irish Times Managing Editor and Economics Columnist Cliff Taylor. Hi Cliff, what's going on right now? It's half Uh, five on a Wednesday, tell us. It's running late, it's in the melting pot. What's new? Uh, What's new with Brexit? Everything runs late. Uh, All the media have their cameras trained on the black door of number 10 Downing Street right now, waiting for Theresa May to come out. Theresa May is is to come out and uh, give the verdict from her cabinet meeting on the draft withdrawal agreement. The withdrawal agreement, as we know, is a document which will clear the way for the UK's exit from the EU in a reasonably orderly basis. Um, She's seeking approval from her cabinet uh, for her strategy. Uh, We know it's not going to be clear cut. Uh, there are certainly reservations in cabinet and beyond that uh, there are very serious doubts about whether she can get this deal through the House of Commons. I mean, I, I think what she's trying to do is come up with the, with the withdrawal agreement which keeps nobody really happy but perhaps uh, doesn't offend a, a, enough people to, to get it defeated in the House of Commons but, but, but the risk is that she, she won't have enough people on her side. So this is still... Very much in the balance, I think. 
So from an Irish perspective and from what you can gather and same again, big proviso, anything we say now could be overtaken by events. Sure. But is this Brexit deal a good deal, a bad deal or simply uh, not quite as awful as it could have been deal as far as Ireland is concerned? Well, I suppose maybe not quite as awful as, as, as it could have been. I guess Brexit is going to be bad for the UK economy and businesses there and, and also bad for the Irish economy and businesses here. So that's where we start out out from. This is an exercise in damage limitation. Uh, that said, uh, there are some pluses, uh, it appears, in the deal for us and for Irish businesses. Uh, the first thing is that it, it avoids the risk of a no-deal Brexit. That is the situation in which the UK crashes out next March with no deal. Uh, trade barriers go up immediately. There's threats of disruption to exports, uh, queues at Dover, uh, difficulties in Irish exporters getting their goods not only to Britain, but through Britain to continental markets, all those things. So it t- a withdrawal agreement finalised would take all that off the table. So if Theresa May can get this through her cabinet and through uh, the House of Commons, that, that, that is the big plus for Ireland in the short term. In the long term, uh, what has emerged as kind of a compromise in this uh, in this agreement is that the whole of the UK would remain in a customs union with the EU if that is required uh, to make sure there's no Irish border. Now, there's a lot of ifs and buts about how this might all work out, but the choreography will be that a so-called transition period will start after the UK leaves the EU, uh, which will mean not much will change up to December 2020. Talks will continue during that transition period to try and come up with a trade deal uh, and everyone hopes that that trade deal would will, will itself solve the problem of the Irish border. If it doesn't, uh, the UK is committed to entering into a customs union with the EU and having specific measures for Northern Ireland. I suppose the pluses of that for Irish businesses is that it, it takes off the table in the short term at least, and maybe in the longer term, some of the risks of Brexit, particularly the risk of big tariff barriers for, for companies exporting to the UK. So Beef exporters, cheese exporters, dairy exporters had feared that they would face big tariffs which would effectively price them out of the UK market. And that, if the UK stays in a customs union with the EU, that is then off the table. It doesn't mean that things are going to stay as they are in the long term. There are still going to be problems for Irish business, new bureaucracy, new barriers, but it, but it's certainly a lot better than a no-deal Brexit. The issue about a customs union, though, is perhaps one of the sticking points that might prevent Theresa May getting this yeah. through the House of Commons. Absolutely. And what happens if she doesn't? I mean, I think that's people are jumping ahead perhaps at yeah. that stage, but so, uh, reasonably. Yeah, quite reasonably. So you're right. Um, Brexit was always going to be bad for the UK. And I mean, one of the one of the... One of the things is that that its supporters haven't haven't come up with any strategy of their own, which which is any, in any way negotiable with the EU on a realistic basis. But you're right; they are now saying, with some justification, uh, that staying in a customs union is going to keep you tied to the EU, and that the UK will have to follow EU rules without having an input into those rules. Clearly, that's not good. It's a, it's a much worse position than Britain was in. So yeah, this could be uh, this could be one of the things that would lead people to vote against it. The other one is the DUP saying that there will be, despite the EU saying a customs union with the UK, uh, that there may be new trade barriers uh, between the North and Britain because rules and regulations in non-customs area may vary between the two sides, particularly in areas like animal health. New checks may be needed. So yeah, the deal could fall. It may not go through the House of Commons. Then we're into speculation. Is there a general election in the UK? Is there a new Conservative leader? 
uh, in those circumstances. Is the EU prepared to grant an extension to the Article 50 process, which would effectively delay Britain's exit date beyond next March? In, in the uh, in in the understanding that you know it will effectively be negotiating with a new prime minister or a new UK government, we don't know the answer to any of those questions. So, if the deal is shot down by the Commons, a new a new uncertainty comes up, and, and everything may be back in the in the in the melting pot. Uh, but it's just not clear how the EU would, would then react to that situation. So Tony Blair has been out again today um, saying it looks like a choice between a pointless Brexit and a painful Brexit. But also, I suppose, just ju- judging from what, everything that's happening today, we're leaning more towards the pointless Brexit. Yeah. And But like as you said yourself there, I mean, but this is what the Brexiteers were told during the actual campaign itself and, and the electorate were, you know, were you know, that message was sent to them, whether it was received or not. But this situation where Britain is sort of effectively complying with EU rules, but not at the top table, uh, sort of just they've just divorced themselves, but ended up worse off. That's is that kind of stick? It's hard to see how it will. Uh, And I think this is the danger that's faced in the House of Commons. Uh, When people start to realise what this deal actually means, as you say, um, that, that, that it will be rejected. Uh, and you know Tony Blair, as ever, has come up with a with a good soundbite. Uh, it is a pretty much pointless Brexit if that's the way it it pans out. And he backs uh, a second vote, of course. He does, but yeah. and and you know the the alternative, as you say, a painful Brexit, a no deal Brexit, chaos. The IMF came out today saying it would cost the UK six percent or more in GDP. Uh, probably similar calculations here. And and you're right, the the third route, the route that Tony Blair and a lot of people are pushing for is uh, what they're calling a people's vote, Uh, another referendum, uh, the terms of which are are still unclear, whether they would be uh, just a yes or no to Brexit or something more complicated. Uh, But certainly if the deal is rejected by the House of Commons, um, that will be back on the table as well because it will be rejected not only because the Brexiteers voted against it, but because a lot of the Remain lobby uh, and and the Labour Party would also have voted it down. Mm. Uh, Labour trying to play both sides against the middle, it appears. Uh, Not quite clear what they're going to do. (laughs) Um, Jeremy Corbyn saying one thing, Keir Starmer saying another thing. It's quite incredible, really, isn't it? It is. And, uh, you know, part of the the issue is the political mix in the UK where there is no, it appears, no sane voice in UK politics uh, taking up the middle ground and, and looking for the longer term interests of the economy and British society. And, and, and uh, you know, you've, 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 you've difficulties on both sides there. So some of our listeners might have uh, seen a clip of Chris Mason, the BBC political correspondent, going viral there on Tuesday uh, for admitting he hadn't the foggiest about what was happening or what was about to happen. And he got a largely positive response (laughs) for that. Uh, So, yeah, refreshing honesty for one. I think so, so, yeah. And I think think particularly if this vote doesn't, if this uh, agreement doesn't get through, um, the the, the cabinet or more likely the House of Commons uh, in the weeks ahead, Really, you're, in, you're, you're into speculation and uh, it, it's very difficult to know how things will play out and what that would mean and how the EU, EU will react. There's just too many variables there uh, to, uh, you know, to say what's going to happen. W- with the exception of saying that the EU is not, I don't, I don't think, going to offer the UK a better deal. I don't think there is any better deal on offer. The EU have gone a considerable way, I think, to meeting uh, UK concerns 
uh, giving way in, in in particular or agreeing in particular to this idea of the UK-wide customs union, which is really an issue for, for, for later in the talks. So no more on offer from buses, I don't think. And London is just going to have to decide in its own, no doubt, chaotic way, what way to jump. <laughs> OK, well, as we speak, as, as I said at the start, uh, Theresa May is behind the black door and the media is camped outside waiting for her to come out. Hat is um, coming across. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, we'll, we'll just watch this uh, ever so slightly Brexit fatigued space but um, so check irishtimes.com for updates but for now thanks Cliff Thanks Laura That's all for this edition of Inside Business with me Laura Slattery my thanks to Steve McCormack from Mediacon Cliff Taylor and Michael McAleer This podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound You can get the latest business news including developments on Brexit straight to your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email on irishtimes.com Until next week Goodbye Goodbye